Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So to get started, can you tell us a little bit more about your role in GetAround? Sure. So my title is Deputy General Counsel and Global Head of Public Policy. And what that really means on the legal side, I uh, am, of course, the deputy to the general counsel and provide full stack legal support, but I also have global purview over intellectual property, privacy, regulatory, product legal, and then public policy and government affairs. So it's a pretty broad portfolio, but an exciting role at an exciting company. Got it. And... Let's talk a little bit more about how you ended up at GetAround. I understood that you were a senior official in the Obama administration, and I'd love to hear about what that experience was like for you. Sure. Well, let me start by taking a little bit uh, before that. So I came out of law school in the late 90s, came out to the Valley and joined a global law firm, Heller Ehrman, spent 11 years there and another five at Covington and Burling. I helped found Covington, Silicon Valley office. And that practice was primarily litigation, working with technology companies, and particular focus on intellectual property litigation. Alongside of that, I had been very active in the community and politically, and that uh, all sort of matured together to uh, President Obama's appointing me as Chief of Staff at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office within the Department of Commerce in 2013. So that's how I got fast forwarding through the 16 years of history in the <laughs> Obama administration. It's, it, it's it, yeah, it's easier to talk, quick to talk about now. So, so the Chief of Staff of the Patent and Trademark Office is a really interesting role. A significant part of it is operational. So the Patent and Trademark Office is a $3 billion fee-funded, not taxpayer-funded agency with roughly 12, 13,000 employees. So coming from a law firm partner doing litigation to really a non-legal sort of leadership role like that was a big change in many ways and just a tremendous honor. But in addition to that operational work, there's substantial policy work. So the head of the Patent and Trademark Office is the advisor to the president through the Secretary of Commerce on intellectual property issues. So I had one foot sort of in this operational role and another as really the coordinator of our policy work on IP, innovation, trade, and otherwise with the Department of Commerce and then the White House. So it was very different from law firm life, but really a tremendous experience. Got it. And what was that experience like? I mean, what were some of the learning lessons from there that ended up helping you in your roles after while being in-house? Sure. So it was interesting. The change from being in a law firm to the government was substantial. And then again, from the government to the venture-backed startup world, which is where I uh, ended up coming back to the Valley after my uh, time in the administration. So those was, was pretty, I covered a lot of ground there. I think in terms of the learnings of each that applied to what happened later, in terms of from the law firm perspective, you know, the, the rigor of analysis, the building and management of, of teams, that all was very important coming into the government, even though in the government, the role was much larger, dealing with many, many more people. But being at an agency like the Patent and Trademark Office, which is deeply substantive, it was essential that I had the deep substance I had learned over such a long period of time as an intellectual property litigator. The, the, the one big difference I would say is, you know, when you're in a law firm or you're in-house, your client is, you know, particular companies. Maybe if you're at a law firm, it's several companies. 
but when you're in the government, your client is essentially uh, the American people. And that breadth of purview and sort of that, that, that awesome responsibility was, uh, was really a, a, a wonderful part of being in, in government. Now, what I didn't have going into government initially was experience helping lead a 13,000 person <laughs> enterprise and, and non-legal functions, because again, the role was not legal. So uh, that's sort of that what you might find from a corporate uh, executive role. I, I didn't have that from the law firm. So there was a lot to learn, but it was, you know, from the folks that were at the, in the agency before, so-called career employees, as well as my fellow presidential appointees. It was a great group, very collaborative group of people. So I think I learned a lot and we did very well for Americans' innovation economy while I was there. Then going from uh, the government into, into in-house, you know, there was, I would say, although the scale was different, the PTO is much larger. It is because it's fee-funded more business-like than most other government agencies. So, you know, I oversaw, for example, the communication shop. So more analogous to sort of marketing and, and PR and comms in a company. I uh, helped oversee the chief administrative officer um, role, which is more like a people HR role. So there were analogies in terms of the functions inside company that I found at the agency. And I think the other thing I would say that really helped me prepare for going in-house, although again, difference in scale, is sort of the breadth of concern for the enterprise. And by that, I mean, you know, when you're uh, helping lead an agency, of course, you're concerned with all of the aspects of the agency, not just today or tomorrow, but the long term. And similarly, when you're in-house, which is, can be quite different from being in a law firm where you might have a discrete piece, a discrete case, for example, but when you're in-house as a general counsel or a deputy general counsel, you need to concern yourself with everything that's going on um, at the company, not necessarily as you know, someone with a legal club trying to, you know, insert legal everywhere, including where it's, it, it doesn't make sense. But really, you have to be thinking about the welfare of the entire organization and the people in the near and longer term. Right. Yeah, that's an awesome, awesome takeaway and some good points. So you ended up leaving the government to go to Uber. Is that right? No, not directly. I left the government in the fall of 2015. So I'd been there a little over two years, which is pretty typical for a presidential appointee to stay that long. I actually started out, I went to a company called Shuttle, S-H-U-D-D-L-E, which was a also a ride-sharing company like Uber, but focused on uh, children and families. So the, the company had been founded uh, you know, a year or two before I got there. And try to address this niche of, you know, uh, many parents wanting to leverage ride sharing, but not, but uh, services like Uber and Lyft uh, were not insured or licensed to take uh, children under 18. So it sought to kind of hit that sweet spot. So I was there a little less than a year. The company was a, it was a fantastic idea, but with not great unit economics. Uh, so that company didn't last. I went from there to a company called Presence Learning, also a marketplace, but uh, providing uh, telehealth services for kids with special needs. So very different in some ways, but still focusing on how to bring services to, uh, through a marketplace to, you know, to people who, who need them. And then from there, I went to Uber in uh, 2018. 
Before I ask you about Uber, uh, have you always just been really interested in this whole ride sharing space or mobility space, or was it just sort of something you fell into and ended up just, you know, really sticking with it and getting immersed into? Ah, uh, so I had not, in my uh, law firm practice, had not worked with mobility companies directly, although that, you know, much of the shared mobility world developed since I left the law firm, but certainly coming, having experienced being in, in DC without a car <laughs> for a couple of years, absolutely, I was very interested. I recall the first time I ever, you know, rode in an Uber, it was actually at the Democratic National Convention in 2012. And it was a complete revelation that I could, you know, find a ride. So uh, it, it was, you know, candidly more of just my own personal experience with the type of product. But as I thought more and more about sort of the important infrastructure in our communities, being able to travel, having that be convenient, accessible, uh, is is essential. So so when I went to shuttle, it was sort of all of that plus this particularly acute need for children. Uh, to have that uh, access. And then presence learning also was about kids, although not about mobility. But when I went to Uber, my, my title was the senior legal director. And what that essentially meant is that I was the principal general counsel of that business on a global basis. And there you're going, you know, talk about scale. At the time, I think Uber rides was in 63 countries. I think there were maybe 15 million or so rides a day. This was um, in you know before the IPO, and to be thinking about you know not just in a in a, a Bay Area sense or an American sense, but a global sense of how people can access opportunities by traveling from one place to another was just an awesome challenge and one that really energized me then and still does today. Yeah, I think you know 2010 to 2020, like that that 10 year period, it always reminds me of sort of like the emergence of you know, the shared economy, the gig economy, it's like so many of the companies that have gone public in the last year, two years, or just household names of the last 10 years, there's so many of them are in that space, whether it's the Ubers, the Airbnbs, or, you know, even even get around to some degree with, with how the business model works. But yeah, it's a really exciting time. Well, so what was that experience like for you at Uber? And how did you leverage that to get to get around? Well, you know, as I talked earlier about sort of this, the scope and scale of Uber's rides business, it was awesome. And particularly, uh, you know, working with a team of product counsel. So shortly before I arrived, Tony West, Uber's general, actually chief legal officer, established the product counsel role. So in addition to having, you know, many legal colleagues who are focused substantively on whether it be employment law or, or competition or privacy, you had these product counsel who work directly or more closely with the business, whether it's with the product managers, the engineers, the business developers, and so forth. And so, you know, my team was sort of embedded in different, in different groups, whether in the context of rides, it was there's the rider group or the driver group or the marketplace group. And so that close connection with the business was really a, an, an incredible part of, of that work. And it offered the opportunity to go. So, for example, I, I went to Cairo in that role and talked with the team there, observed the Uber bus product, which we don't, uh, which Uber doesn't have here in the U.S., but it is exactly the kind of product that can leverage the kind of the ways that people get around Cairo to go to, to work but do it in a way that, uh, you know, you can book a, a spot in, in, a, in a bus that's, uh, you know, that's 
generally safer and more uh, and more convenient than flagging a bus on the side of the road, which is the the typical way it's done there. So it it was sort of it was fascinating to take what I had seen in my personal experience as you know standing you know on a corner in 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 San Francisco and, and realizing that gosh I needed to get someplace and I could you know I could use my app to to access a ride quickly to to going other parts of the world and seeing how the ride sharing platform and approach is really changing many people's ways of traveling, not just in the way that I had experienced. So that was great experience. And then in terms of, uh, and there was much, much more to it, but then going from Uber to, to GetAround. So, you know, I had been familiar with GetAround. So just to be clear, in case uh, folks that are listening aren't familiar with GetAround, it's a uh, connected contactless car sharing marketplace. So what that means, so ride sharing is, you know, you use your app and someone else is driving, you know, their car and they'll pick you up and, and drive you someplace. Um, what GetAround uh, allows is it allows you to use your smartphone to book, unlock, and drive yourself a, a car. So it's particularly useful for people who either don't have cars or don't have the right kind of car for what they're trying to do. Um, so as an example, a couple weeks ago, um, my wife had purchased on Craigslist a treadmill desk. Now, I don't know, I didn't know a lot about treadmill desks until she purchased the desk. I learned very quickly they're big and heavy. <laughs> and I have a Prius. So we uh, used Get Around to book a pickup truck. And because uh, of the, there's a hardware device that um, is installed in the in the car that's on Get Around, or in this case, the truck. So no one needed to give me the keys. It wasn't sort of a handing over the keys. I didn't have to contact uh, anybody. That's why it's contactless, which was particularly important for you know this COVID era. Um, and so I I got you know got in the truck, got, got with some help from uh, family, <laughs> got the treadmill into the truck, and uh, and and brought it home, and then was able to return the truck. You know, just a couple hours. So. Uh, very convenient and accessible, and that's the kind of service that GetAround provides. So a bit of a, a tangent there, but to, to close the loop on the relationship between Uber and GetAround, there's been a, a partnership whereby GetAround, Uber drivers can access cars on GetAround to be able to do their driving with Uber. So I was familiar with the company. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. Yes, yes. So, you know, one of the, obviously one of the important things you need from a ride-sharing perspective is not just the driver, but the car. And depending on, so if a driver, again, much like any user for GetAround, doesn't have a car or doesn't have a car that's new enough or appropriate to use for ride sharing, um, you know, GetAround is one of Uber's actually many partners um, from which they can procure a car. So I would say in terms of Uber's preparing me for GetAround, one was just having gone just, you know, even further in depth in sort of the mobility space. And be generally familiar with get around from the work at Uber. But more broadly, I think, you know, having led a, a team of product counsel working with so many different aspects of the company, a very large and complex company, I think positioned me well to go into get around, which is, you know, earlier stage than Uber, uh, much smaller than Uber. But it really gave me that, uh, you know, that bird's eye view and that have that experience engaging with a mobility company in many different respects, you know, that was good preparation for, for going to get around. And I've been there now about a year. Yeah. Get around, get around's an awesome service. I've used it. I told you this, but yeah, in New York, it's, it's really useful, especially when the incentive to own a car here is just really tough with 
parking and the traffic cops trying to nickel and dime you for every single ticket that they could. So I've, I found Getaround to be really useful when I need to leave the city and you know, make a weekend trip out to Long Island or something like that. So kudos to you. And the, the customer service is really good as well. I'm glad to hear that. Thanks. Yeah. So what, walk me through a little bit about what your role is at Getaround. How big is the legal team? And then I have some more follow-ups around your experience at Getaround as well. Sure, sure. So um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, as deputy GC, part of my role is, you know, being the second to the, to the GC. So I get pulled into a wide variety of legal matters and provide support throughout. And that can be corporate, commercial, you know, real estate employment and so forth. But my primary focus is public policy and government relations on a global basis, and then privacy, regulatory, product, legal, and intellectual property. So as I've been in different companies, I've been at points, the only lawyer in a company at Uber as, as hundreds of lawyers and at uh, get around, we have, a seven-person legal and policy team globally. So it's dramatically smaller than Uber and you know, large enough that we do have sort of our specialization, but small enough that when you come, come to work every day, and of course, this is all happening virtually now, you could get pulled into anything. So in that sense, it's, it's very start, the culture is very startup still where, you know, you, everyone is, all, is something of a generalist. Right. Got it. And part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because I remember seeing your LinkedIn post, you know, maybe a few months ago, and you talked about how the impact like COVID had on Getaround. You know, I could imagine that it must have been hard during that period of February, March, April, whatever month it really hit hard there. But yeah, what was that experience like for you? Because that was only, it seems like that was only a few months after you had originally just joined Getaround. Yeah, exactly. So I I joined Getaround in mid-December. And three months to the day was the last day that I spent in the office. Wow. So, you know, I joined and then there were the holidays and, you know, early in the year, you know, it's kind of getting, getting, getting up to speed on the roll and then, you know, bam, there's COVID. And so that, I think that was probably challenging for everybody, regardless of the kind of company they're in, uh, you know, you join a company and then very quickly, you're not in the same place as your coworkers. So that was one thing. But in terms of, of COVID specifically, our business was drastically impacted by the lockdowns. So while, as I mentioned, you know, the service is contactless, you don't, you know, it's comparatively safe, you don't have to meet anybody to, to use the car, clearly people were staying at home more and did negatively impact the business. I think we were down, bookings were down maybe 75% in the early days, which <laughs> is, is not, not great, right? Yeah, that's tough. That's, that's, yeah. I would have been and, prepared, man. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, uh, I think there were so many things to concern. Uh, you know, I think we were all concerned about lots of different things at that time. Obviously, you know, being employed was <laughs> high on my list of goals. Right. Uh, and, and thankfully, I was able to maintain that. But yes, it was a big hit. But we actually found, I mean, there were definitely some dark months where we, you know, the survival of the company was really in question. But you know, during the summer, we actually saw things turn around pretty dramatically such that by the late summer, we were actually double our pre-COVID baseline. Wow. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, as I mentioned a number of times, this contactless service. So if some people, you still need to get places and what options are you going to take and cars, if you're going to take a car and you don't have one, you know, how do you get it and, and get around provides that contactless experience. Another is, you know, with fewer people flying, 
and other modalities perhaps seeming less safe, I think that more, you know, as a percentage, although I don't have this, these statistics, my, my gut reaction is that, you know, people who might have otherwise taken other, other modalities of transportation decided to use car sharing. So we actually came back with a vengeance. And I think that may be what I posted. There was the article in the New York Times, I think in August, that, that flagged get around among other companies that whose demise maybe had been predicted, but had kind of come back more strong than ever. Yeah, that, and that's, that's a really inspiring story, especially because there's people probably would have written you guys off, you know, and thought that, that it wasn't going to work out. How did you guys keep morale up during that period when, you know, things weren't as certain and, you know, the bookings dramatically dropped? Like, how did your role change from, you know, really navigating through that, that crisis with your team? Sure. Well, you know, it, it was, you know, I think the combination of a business hit and being remote, I think for, for us and for many other companies was kind of a double whammy, a, a double challenge, because some of these sort of interpersonal engagement that you'd be able to have if you were in person, of course, we didn't have that. So my team and I focused a lot of attention on what we needed to do to, to you know, to reduce the severe impact of, of covid so, you know, we focused on getting COVID-related aid and, you know, in, in the U.S. and elsewhere. And so I think we, we were able to share, and of course, there are many other parts of the company besides the legal team, but for our part, you know, it was clear that we were working hard to get through or hope, hopefully get the company through that really rough patch. So we, we kept, you know, we kept both optimistic and visibly working hard to, to do that. And I think at Get Around, there's a real passion for the mission. We call it to uh, solve the problem of, quote, car overpopulation by ensuring ultimately that all cars are shared, which means you need many fewer cars. And people sort of, instead of their, the one, you know, buying the car that might be not great for anything, but good enough for most things and having it in the you know, in the driveway for 22 hours a day unused. Now you can, you know, you sounds like you've had this experience, right? You can go to the next block and, you know, one day you need a, a pickup truck like I did, another day you need a sedan. So I think sort of that mission focus really kept people motivated. And, and certainly as the business started to turn around, um, that obviously, you know, see, seeing that line of, of bookings go up or revenue go up is also quite a, uh, quite a motivator. Right. And what are your, you know, sort of last takeaways on the f- future mobility and, and where you see that going? It was curious too, to get your, 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 your two cents on self-driving cars and how that might even, you know, play into that, which you're probably seeing a lot more of in the Bay area. Yeah. So, I mean, I, there's a, there's a, an acronym that many people use ACES. So A-C-E-S to think about the future of mobility. And A stands for autonomous, C stands for connected, E is electric, and S is shared. And so those are sort of four separate trends, but you know, I think from where I sit, they do sort of coalesce toward what, you know, thinking about what mobility can be. Now, you know, autonomous vehicles, I, I think there's clearly been tremendous amount of progress. I think most predictions about the timing of when they'll rollout, particularly stage five autonomous, which requires no human uh, in, uh, intervention, that keeps getting pushed out a little bit. But ultimately, it's, it, it can be much safer. Autonomy can be much safer. And I think ultimately, that's where we'll head connected. I mean, that's here. So whether 
whether the, the cards are connected to users uh, in, in like the way that they are with get around or to infrastructure or other vehicles, there's so much that can be done to make the transportation mobility experience much more efficient. And every time I sit in traffic, which isn't very much these days because I don't really leave the house very much, but I, I think about, oh my gosh, what if, <laughs> what if, first of all, what if I didn't have to drive when it was autonomous, but what if the cars all were able to communicate so that instead of trying to stop and go and they just could keep the safe distance between each other and we could actually drive from, from the Bay Area to LA in, you know, maybe in, in five safe hours than the seven hours that it often takes. And then electric, I think that, that goes without saying. I, uh, that, you know, as we think about clean technologies, I think electric will increasingly be part of our mobility ecosystem, not just for cars, but obviously micromobility as well, which is, is largely electric today. And then finally, and maybe more, most important for get around, you know, shared. So ultimately, even if all the cars, there were no uh, human driven cars, there would need to be a marketplace, a framework for connecting people who need to go someplace with, with those vehicles. And that's essentially what uh, our expertise is at get around. So I see both you know, for get around and for the industry as a whole, tremendous potential, increasing potential over time as as sort of the future of mobility rolls out, not just you know, in, in urban areas where you know, early on most of these technologies will be deployed there, but ultimately to suburban, exurban, and even rural areas, which have you know, unique transportation mobility challenges. Great, this is awesome. Uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on over in the Bay Area? You know, there's a lot of people and chatter about folks wanting to leave the Bay Area and going to other cities, you know, whether it's the Austins or the Miamis of the world. You're in the thick of things there. So what are your thoughts on, you know, sort of the future of work in the Bay Area? So uh, th that's a great question. And I think, you know, over the course, so I came to, to Silicon Valley to go to college at Stanford in 1990. So I've been here 30 years, which definitely dates me I and mean, have been gone only uh, briefly for law school and then to be in the Obama administration. So I'm, I'm definitely a Bay Area person at this point. You know, and, and, and over time, whether it's, you know, regulation, taxes, there's claims over the years that, you know, there's going to be a mass exodus from the Bay Area, which generally hasn't happened. It's happened a bit, but not at large scale. You know, I think there are many fantastic communities in the country, in the world, where there are, you know, innovative people doing uh, great things. But I do continue to believe that the San Francisco Bay Area is sort of the densest area of innovative people and ideas. That's not preordained. It may not always be that way, but the academic institutions, the culture of you know, investment, the diversity and draw from all parts of the world, I think will continue to serve us well in terms of being able to not just keep the companies that were built here uh, overall, but also to plant the seeds for many new companies you know, I think with, with COVID and increasing remote work, it'll be increasingly challenging because it is expensive to be here. We are a, a, a state and a community that, you know, has regulatory regimes that are about making quality of life good, which sometimes can be more costly. But I'm bullish on, uh, on Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, and uh, I look forward to greater competition, both domestically and internationally with other areas who are also welcoming innovators. I think that only helps us all. For sure. Awesome. And how could anyone get in touch with you or find you after they hear this? 
Sure. So I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Burns, B-Y-R-N-E-S. I am on Twitter, although not a too frequent user, Andrew Burns, B-Y-R-N-E-S-C-A. And uh, would love to uh, would love to hear from folks that have heard this and, and may want to continue the conversation. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ashish.